Hi, long time no see. Would you turn your Bibles to uh, Ezra chapter 4 to 6? All right, so um, uh, some of you are probably aware that I was away for the last year. I just came back. I was in West Africa. And one of the people that I met over there, one couple that I met over there that left a big impression on me and my wife, uh, I've changed their name, but we'll call them Ryan and Esther. They're a missionary couple from the UK who have been living in uh, Sierra Leone, uh, West Africa, for about five, five, six years. And uh, they are engaged in a bunch of different types of ministries. But the most important was uh, living in a particular village where they were doing vocational training, trying to, uh, to, to understand and connect to the village and do disciple-making work at the same time and potentially start a church in the long run. But it's been a really rocky five, six years because um, in the first place, they had quite difficult conflicts with their leadership after a very short time in something like about one, two years, so much so that they ended up having to leave the organization that first sent them into the field. And then after that, you know, here are these guys who have given up a potentially much better life in the UK and come to live in some, you know, corner of West Africa within a village and, uh, you know, under quite difficult circumstances. And their relationship with the village began, began to get quite difficult, and they were not treated very fairly with regard to their rent and their housing. And at one point, they were threatened, you know, that people would come around and beat them up, you know, in the middle of the night around their house. And that was quite a scary thing for them to go through. And so there, there's these conflicts with the, with the village, with the, uh, with the leadership. And then there's just the fruits of their ministry as well. Um, you know, five years, a lot of pouring out their hearts into the, into the village, and yet very, very hard ground and doesn't seem to be getting a lot of very tangible fruit. And that feeds back again into their relationship with their home church and their, um, you know, and their leadership who look at them and say, wow, you guys are there for so long, you're not doing anything much, you know, you're, you're, you're quite useless. Um, so lo- lots of reasons why they were quite disappointed and felt you know, a big gap between what they thought, you know, ministry would be like in uh, West Africa and what they actually ended up experiencing. And this, this seems to be a theme that I see a lot in people, both in, in people that are ministering out there as well as, you know, leaders and, uh, you know, leaders big or small, cell group leaders, worship leaders, uh, people with any kind of ministry within the church uh, there or, or over here. And there are a couple of different types of these. I mean, w- w- one of it is, you know, just the disappointment with the ministry itself, how we've poured a lot of energy into something over many years, and the amount of fruit that comes out of that seems to be, you know, quite, quite anemic. Um, just disappointment with leaders that, you know, you're, you're supposed to be pulling in the same direction and doing the same kind of work, and yet you find, oh, this, they're, they're just getting in my way or, or obstructing me or, or just find that, you know, we have a difficult relationship or just a disappointment with the church as a whole itself, you know, where a place that's supposed to be a source of, of, of support or of love or of, um, of encouragement is actually a place where it's actually very tiring to go to, go to and be a part of uh, because it, it drains energy rather than gives life. And um, the, the question is, how do, we, how do we deal with this? And one text that we're going to look at to, to try and get to this end point is uh, through Ezra chapters 4 to 6. 
Now, um, I, I just want to remind you of the stuff that uh, uh, Pastor Cheeming told you last week. You know how, you know, usually when I give a sermon, I like to go through the outline and all of that. But this time, Pastor Cheeming stole that from me. So I'm just going to have to do it in a very abbreviated. So in any case, the story so far, right? So uh, you have the, the, the nation of Israel that was uh, a nation for, you know, a couple of hundred years. And then it got divided, it disobeyed God, and then it was taken away. Uh, into exile by the Babylon, by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And then a little while later, uh, there was another big kingdom, big empire, the Persian Empire, that allowed them to come back to their land, right? And so they came back to their land, and they came back to the land in three waves. And the three waves were led by three different people, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And uh, kind of three different major things happen under those three leaders. The temple is rebuilt under Zerubbabel and Jeshua. The people are reformed. There's preaching and reformation under Ezra. And then the wall is rebuilt under Nehemiah. And some of the books that cover these, so Zerubbabel and uh, Ezra, kind of these bits are covered within the book of Ezra. Um, and then you've got Nehemiah over here. Over, okay, anyway, you see Nehemiah. And uh, there are a couple of other prophetic books that are come around that period as well. So in this series of sermon, we're looking at the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai. So um, last week, uh, Pastor Shiming spoke about Ezra 1 to 3, the hearts that God moves. And this week, uh, we're looking at chapters 4 to 6. Right Now, um, I'm going to try something today, which is I'm going to actually read through the whole of Ezra 4 to 6, right? So that, that, that's a lot of material we're going to cover. So please bear with me. Right? So uh, we're looking at... Uh, see, it's not only Pastor Kokfai who can do this. I can do puns as well. Right? Right? So, uh, okay, we're looking at Ezra chapter 4, uh, verse 1 onward. So now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of uh, Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build the house, the God of Israel, uh, build, build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, what's, what's going on here? So, the returned exiles, the Jews, are going to start rebuilding the temple, the house of the Lord. And there are these people who are in the land who are saying, let us help you with that because we worship that same God as well. And they say no. And, and who are these people? Um, these are, this is, the, I guess, one of the first major mentions in the Bible of the people who later become known as the Samaritans, right? Because when Israel and Judah are exiled, they're taken away, and um, Babylon and Assyria uh, uh, are, have conquered this land. Sometimes, like the Babylonians, what they do is they just take people away and exile them. And other people, like the Assyrians, what they do is they don't just take people away from the lands that they have conquered. They bring other people, bring them over, and mix them all up so that they become weaker and they're not able to resist them. So this is the, this is the offspring of those people who have been mixed up, people who used to be part of Israel but now are, are quite mixed in their religion and their ethnicity. Right? So 
chapter 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land, so these are the people who initially offered to help. So then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And so they don't want the, uh, the returning Jews to be building the house of the Lord. And so they, they, they write, I mean, they cause all sorts of frustration, and then they write a letter. Now, this is something that I discovered in my own research, which you won't find anywhere, right? I've made a discovery. I've discovered that the people uh, of Samaria, right, the, these Samaritans, they're actually Singaporeans. And the reason is because when they're upset with their neighbors, they, you know, complain to the government. And so they write a letter to the government, so the Samaritans. And uh, in uh, verse 7, I'm going to go for it. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Midratath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. So these are the words of the letter, right? So Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. So this is their, their heading where it says who it is coming from. And so they write the letter in Aramaic. Don't worry, you don't need to read this. Translate it, right? To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it be known to the king that the Jews who came up uh, from you to us have gone to Jerusalem, and they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute or custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and we inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find that in the book of the records and learn that this city, this Jerusalem, is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. And that is why the city was laid to waste. We made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, then you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. And so what they're saying to uh, the, the, the king of Persia is, right, so uh, Persia, this huge monstrous empire, and the capital, Susa, and this is where the book of Esther is, um, uh, is, is uh, set later on. And from here, from Babylonia, the Jews, have, the Jews have come all the way back to the province beyond the river. So this is Palestine or, um, or where uh, currently you know, Israel and a bunch of other countries are. Right? And so they've come back here, and the people now in Jerusalem, in Samaria, they're telling the king in Susa, if you let these people rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, then all of this, you're going to lose all of this territory. Because once they rebuild, they're not going to listen to you anymore. They're not going to be subservient to you anymore. And so the king, so the king from Persia, he sends back an answer. And he goes, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. The king sent an answer. 
to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I, make a, and I made a decree, and a search has been made, and it has been found that this city from off old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been uh, over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute and custom and toll were paid. Therefore, Make a decree that these men be made to cease and that, this city, uh, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? And so they've been successful. They've complained to the government, to, uh, uh, to the king of Persia. And he has said, fine, stop these Jews from proceeding with rebuilding the temple. Uh, chapter 4, verse 23. And then when a copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work, of the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the, king, of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And it stopped for 18 years for 18 years no further activity now do you remember where where Zerubbabel and Joshua came from what you heard from Pastor Chiming last week so these are those men among others who were moved by God whose spirits were stirred to come back to end the exile to restore the kingdom Chapter 3, this is earlier, uh, verse 8. Now in the second year after the coming of the, uh, to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of, of uh, Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work on the house of the Lord. They made a good start because their hearts were moved by God. And 18 years later, it had got nowhere. It had stopped. But that's when chapter 5, verse 1, this happened. So after that interval between chapter 4 and chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel our same Zerubbabel, the, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the same Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of, the, of God were with them, supporting them. Uh, chapter 5, verse 3. And now they have stopped for 18 years. They have now restarted again, found their spirits again under the encouragement of Haggai and Zechariah. And this time, something happens again, which is very similar to what happened the last time. And this is at chapter 5, verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates, you know, we give our children lots of biblical names. Please don't choose names like these, right? So, Shethar, what did you call your kid? Shethanar, 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 come for dinner. You know, it's a very difficult name. Anyway, so Shethanar Bozanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. 
who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then the answer should be returned by letter concerning it. So again, same time, objection by the governors, by the people in Samaria. And again, they write a letter, but this time, they don't stop the work until the, the response comes back. So one more time, a letter. And chapter 5, verse 6. And this is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and his associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which it was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it be known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, it is being built with huge stones and timbers being laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you the decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. So this is still the letter, right? And saying this is the reply of the Jews to, to Tatanayano. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. So that was the, the first temple, Solomon's temple, right? Verse 12, But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them up to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the house and carried away the people to Babylonia. And so this is the exile he's describing. But however, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And now he's now talking about when the Persians conquered Assyria and Babylon and allowed them to come back. Uh, verse 14, And the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Chesbazar, whom he had made governor, and he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site." Then this Shazbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it has not yet finished. And so the Samaritans ask, who, who let you do this? Who authorized to do this? you to do this because our king had told you to stop. And the Jews had responded, but actually a previous king had asked us to start. And so we're going to build this. Verse 17. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in the matter. So they've got conflicting stories, right? They know that one king said stop, another king, a previous king apparently said build. So which is it? So the Samaritan governors are saying, okay, king in, uh, in Persia, find out. Look at your old records, figure out exactly what is the truth, whether they have been allowed to rebuild or not. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then Darius the king, he made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. 
And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which it was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God that is at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and, let, and also let the gold and silver uh, vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem. So he's saying, let them go back, let them rebuild it, and not only let them rebuild it, we will supply the finances and the material to do that, and also the previous stuff that was destroyed and taken away from that first temple, you can take it back and reuse that stuff again. Um, verse 5, um, and also let the gold and silver da, 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 be brought back to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. And so the old decree said, yes, they should rebuild. S uh, chapter 6, verse 6, now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar Bozanai and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on this site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and for his sons. I also make a decree, so he's also made, made a decree already that they should be supported in rebuilding the house of God, but I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, so because already there's been this changes, right? You know, one guy say yes, one guy say no, this time he says stop. This time, if anybody alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it, he shall be killed on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. So all this back and forth, a letter here, a letter there, Darius says, that's it. You know, this is my decree, it shall be rebuilt. Six, chapter 6, verse 13. And then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar Bozanai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their, re their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And so they have finished the rebuilding finally 
in around the year 616. Remember, they came, uh, six, uh, sorry, 516 BC. Remember, they came back about 538 BC. Chapter 6, verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of tribes of Israel. This is a lot of stuff. Now, where did all this stuff come from? Probably, uh, probably at the decree of Darius, all of this wealth that is collected in the province. Verse 18. Um, and they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the books of Moses. And so it is a great restoration of Israel, not only of the people back into this land, not only of the temple back the way that it should be, but also the, res the resumption of worship. And they resume all the festivals and the rest of the national life of Israel as well. Chapter 6, verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. And so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from the exile and also by everyone who had joined them and had separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Now this, verse 21, is, is of particular importance because remember earlier on when the people of the land said, let us help you to build the house. And then when they say, when they're told no, they began to oppose them. You know, that there's this, there's this offer of help, and we don't know how sincere it was. But in any case, when they're told no, they begin to oppose them. It seems like the Jews are quite insular. They're very, you know, only us. We're the only ones who can do it. All of you who are not Jews, all of you who are not part of us, we're not going to allow you to join us. But here it appears that as long as the people separate themselves from the uncleanness of the land, as long as they let go of the other gods, let go of their impurities, and then they say they want to join them. It appears that uh, Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua and the rest of the, of the Jews are actually quite happy to include them. They're not just always you know, racist and excluding people who are not outside of them, but as long as their order of worship is aligned with Israel's, they're okay with bringing them in. Verse 22, And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the Lord um, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, and so that he aided them in the work of the house, the God of Israel. Whew, so that's three chapters. And um, I want us to shift for a little while and think about what it was like for Zerubbabel and Joshua. And just kind of recall what the story was for them. Right? So these are two men, two leaders who left probably a more prosperous, more comfortable life in Babylon, thought that they were returning to Jerusalem to rebuild, to restore their nation. And they started that. Their hearts were stirred by that cause. And they, they bit the bullet and they did it. And they moved. They made whatever sacrifices were needed and they moved. And they started the rebuilding. And then they faced opposition. And they stopped. 
and they gave up. And 18 years later, the word of, the God, of God, the word of the Lord comes once again to the people. It comes once again through the prophets. And what it doesn't say to them is, these losers, these people who led you before, these people who gave up, these people who failed, forget them, I'm raising up new leaders for you. And I'm putting the spirit on new leaders, better leaders, more worthy leaders, because these guys, these old ones, they failed. They come back, Haggai and Zechariah, the word of the Lord comes to them. And in all of these citations, it mentions by name, Zerubbabel, 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 son of Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Jeshua. It calls them by name and says, these are the ones I've put my spirit on. These are the ones who are going to do my work. These are the ones that are going to restore the temple of God in Jerusalem. There are so many other prophets in the scriptures, right, in the, in the Old Testament. And so many of them speak in quite generic terms about God is, is supporting the king, you know, like the, like the king psalms and all of that. Uh, the, king of, the, the king that is anointed by God, the anointed of God, uh, God supports them. God requires you to follow his anointed king. But they don't necessarily name the kings by name. And yet in Haggai and Zechariah, Again and again, it says, it's Zerubbabel. It's Zerubbabel. It's Zerubbabel. Now, I, I'm, I know that um, Shing... Okay, Uncle Shing is going to do the... Elder Shing is going to do the sermon on Haggai coming up, so I'm not going to like step on his toes right now. So I'm going to let him deal with that. But the point is that in the book of Ezra, as they have stopped, they seem to have you know, just, you know, given up for 18 years, and God revives their spirit again, he goes back and calls once again the same men that he has done so before. And I'm just going to take one excerpt from, I think this is Richard's sermon, uh, you know, Haggai chapter 2. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai, and on the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, and I'm about to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horse and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, like the ring on my finger. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. He's been chosen. Now, I know of so many people who, at one point in their lives, felt a certain burden for a certain ministry. And, and, and they tried, right? And they put their hearts into that. And then it just didn't seem to get anywhere, right? And, and they tried for years sometimes. And then when they found that it wasn't bearing any fruit, um, they stopped. They let that go. Um, they, they moved away. Um, I, I have one friend, and she's, uh, her passion was for um, the Word of God within, within the church. And so she was quite heavily involved in uh, you know, youth work. 
And you know what youth work is like, like right? You've got hundreds of these kids that come through your uh, that, that come through your ministry, and they're super on fire and they're super unexcited. And there's this time in their lives when the only thing they want to do is be with you within church. You can't get them out of the building, out of your house. They're always there, meeting and praying and and looking at the scriptures. And then it's almost like a switch goes on. At some point, some of them decide, I'm just more interested in in playing World of Warcraft than, than this. I'm, I'm more interested in my school canoeing than I am in this. And then they kind of stop and they leave the church. And it can be extremely abrupt and extremely painful. It, it, was, it was painful for, for her, uh, this friend of mine who was doing the youth work. And after a while, she just decided, it's just not worth it. You know, I, I minister to these, like over a year, maybe like 50 or 60 young people, and three years later, only like five of them are still part of the church. The rest of them have left. Um, this, this, this isn't worth it. And, and they leave. And she left, and she just went on to focusing on her, on, her, on her work. And she didn't like leave the church or become apostate or anything like that. She just decided to step back and say, I'm going to leave the, the, the kind of ministry and leadership to those people who can tahan because I, I can't. You know, it just breaks my heart too many times. And that's, that's painful for me to see, right? Um, and is there a burden that, that for you, you have felt that way about? You know, maybe something that years ago, maybe 18 years ago or maybe a short time ago, um, you felt that that's something that God has given you to do something to restore, something to build up, some part of the life of the kingdom of God, the life of the church that you thought God has placed in you, that that is what you're called to do. That's the little part of this world that you're called to, to fix and put back and put right. And for whatever reason, for disappointment or otherwise, you've, you've, you've stopped that or maybe you've just stepped back from that and you've told yourself, I'm just taking a break, but that break that was supposed to be for two weeks turned into two months and then two years. And then now you're, you're just waiting for God to speak to you, right? Uh, you're kind of praying and waiting. And that's not a ministry that, that you're going back to. Is, is, that, a, is that a burden that's, that you've failed, that you feel that you've failed in carrying out? Um, when I was in, uh, when my wife and I, we were in um, Africa for, for the last year, a lot of the work that we did um, within, part of it was work within uh, the health system, so, so rebuilding a hospital, uh, training people, etc. Another part of it was uh, Christian work among, especially the young people, the Christian fellowship of the university where I was working with. Um, and we failed a lot, right? No, don't get me wrong, we, we did, we... We, I'm very grateful for our time there. I look back and I think that was like the best year of my life, right? Uh, uh, we saw a lot of, of God doing amazing things through some amazing people, and we are grateful, so grateful for that. And yet, at the same time, we encountered a lot of failure, right? In, in our own work and in the work of people, um, other believers, uh, other NGO workers who did the same thing that we did, right? Um, we counseled you know, young people who are in very difficult, sometimes abusive relationships, Christian men who are kind of like beating their wives and things like that. Um, and we thought, you know, we've put heart and time and effort and, and tears into this. Maybe something's changed. And, you know, a few months later, they've gone back to that. You know, 
no, no, nothing's different. And we know people who have been in their, you know, spilling their, almost spilling their blood, you know, because they donated blood for the patients, you know, spilling their blood, trying to improve the health system because so many things were missing, so many things were not working, so many things were drawn away due to corruption or inefficiency. And they went in there and gave of themselves to be taken advantage of, to, to, to be stolen from, um, to be hurt, to be betrayed. And so they experience a lot of that, that failure as well. And that, that really tempts people to give up and to move on and to say, I've, I've done that part, that part of my life. So is there, a, is there a burden like that that you have felt? Something that you haven't failed at, but it's just something that you've, you've done for a while. It was successful, but it was so tiring. And you decided, I can't do that anymore. I've, I've given up on that, whether it's one year ago or 18 years ago. Have you felt disappointed by the, by the fruit of your ministry, by what's actually come out of it? Uh, one, of the, um, one of my most memorable conversations when I was in Bible school, this is like in, in 2011, 2012, was with this fellow um, um, friend. In this, uh, one of the modules that I did was in theology. And uh, within that, you know, theology and hermeneutics, it's like Bible interpretation. And I'm talking to this guy about how, you know, this is really hard. You know, the interpretation, there's a, uh, those of you, the, the cell group leaders who came for the training, right? You know that stuff that you heard from, uh, from Uncle Shing. You know, the, the exegesis, the hermeneutics, the historical context, the, the, the literary context, looking through the text, understanding the themes, all that stuff. It's quite tough, right? And then we're talking about that and how we apply that to preaching and what he said to me really struck me because what he said is, Raj, this is such a waste of time. I feel like it's so futile because when I do this, when I pour my heart and I spend weeks looking through the commentaries and studying and praying and preparing for this sermon and then I deliver it and then like nobody really seems to care. But then the next week, this like visitor comes to my church, he preaches, and he tells this like funny story about a dog which has got a fight with a goose or something like that, and then everybody loves it, and everybody remembers that. But all of the, the labor, the interpretation, all of that goes nowhere, and so this is a, a waste of time. That was very scary for me to hear from somebody who's actually a pastor in a church, you know? Um, but is, is there a ministry that you've poured yourself into and you feel disappointed by. Um, I see cell group leaders, right, who are cell group leaders. They're like the veterans of our church, right? Because some of you guys, you've been like cell group leader longer than I've been alive, right? I mean, you've been there. There's this group that, you know, you've poured yourself into week after week. You prepare your house. You prepare the study. You prepare to do the session. You lead the discussion. And at the end of it, some people don't show up. Some people are busy. They've got other things to do. Uh, a lot of the food gets un left uneaten, and though you, so you need to put it in the fridge or you throw it away. Of all of that effort that you spent preparing the Bible study, it goes nowhere because, you know, just people weren't there, right? Or maybe you're, you're, you're a worship leader. You know, you have in your mind as you're practicing, as you're rehearsing for uh, the, the church service, right? You have in mind this vision of all of, your, your, of the congregation kind of levitating up in the air in like you know, rapture in their worship of God. And then you come in and then you start playing and you find that half of them are checking their mobile phones or asleep. And I know that that crushes your heart. 
and maybe for the for the preachers, and, and I'm kind of speaking to myself a little bit about this, you know, um, I know how much it hurts when you feel like people nodding asleep when you're trying to when you're trying to preach, and it happens to me probably a little bit more than most of the other guys here. Um, but but it happens, and so we we feel disappointed by the fruit of our ministry. And if we think back at the fruit of Zerubbabel's ministry, right? Here's the point of restoration. And you see this more in Ezra 7 to 10 and Nehemiah, so I'm not going to read the text so much. But their ministry of restoration, it was marked by being imperfect. It was incomplete. It was impermanent. Right? There's this great restoration. Everybody celebrated, you know, the, the feasts of God. And yet, a few chapters later... Um, I mean, when you have a description of the temple, this is probably what Zerubbabel's temple kind of looked like. It was about the same size probably as Solomon's temple that was built before, although it wasn't nearly as fancy, right? It wasn't nearly as, as, as kind of well-decorated and beautifully structured. And it paled in comparison to, to the, the temple that was extended and built after that, Herod's temple. And it's super, super tiny if you compare it to like uh, um, uh, Ezekiel's prophecy of what the temple was supposed to look like, which is humongous, right? And then here's Zerubbabel who restores his little temple, and it was tiny. And if you don't just think about the temple, but about the restoration of the people, right? Remember, Zerubbabel, we read Ezra, uh, you know, 4 to 6, right? And then here, just a few chapters later in uh, chapter 9, this is Ezra speaking. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled the hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Then those who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles. And now he speaks to God. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are, le we, we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. And behold, we are before you in our guilt. For no one can stand before you because of this. Great restoration under Zerubbabel. A few chapters later, the guy who comes back to kind of preach to, uh, preach to Israel, he's pulling out his hair and pulling out his beard. It was an impermanent, it was an incomplete, it was a partial restoration, even under Zerubbabel. But what do we say to this? You know, do we look at this and say, and therefore, what Zerubbabel did was, was useless. After all of the being called and waiting and trying and then failing, waiting 18 years, being called again, being stirred again by the spirit of, of uh, Haggai and Zechariah and coming back and rebuilding, after all of this, do we look at that and say, Zerubbabel, actually, at the end of the day, what you did was, was, was not worthwhile. In the New Testament we have glimpses of what every restoration, what every worship in that old temple was supposed to be like. Hebrews chapter 8, 4 to 5, For if he were on earth, Jesus, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. The Old Testament temple, the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament worship, the Old Testament ceremonies, in a way they, they were supposed to be, they were always supposed to be a shadow of something bigger and truer 
the shadow of what things are in heaven and permanently. And that same theme, the idea that what we have now is kind of, it resembles that, it's a shadow of that, but it's not exactly the same of that. It's talked about using kind of different language in different parts of, of the New Testament. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul talks about how now we see him as, as in a mirror dimly. It's incomplete, it's impermanent, because then we shall see him face to face. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about how now the Christian life, even with the Spirit in us, it's, it's the first fruits and we groan, awaiting that time when we'll be adopted as sons. And in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about how right now our groaning, our imperfect life, it's as if we are naked. It's as if we are waiting to be further clothed, further swallowed up by life, which will happen when Jesus comes again. And the point is that every restoration, every ministry, every thing that we do now, if it's imperfect, if it's incomplete, if it's impermanent, that doesn't mean that it's, it's without value. Because just like with Zerubbabel, what he built that was by the Spirit of God, it was incomplete, it was impermanent, it was imperfect, and it was immeasurably valuable. That was a treasure at his time because it was a shadow of something that was real. And so if you are engaged in a ministry and you are leading a cell group and you've poured yourself into it and it's imperfect, some people don't come, some people don't understand the thing that you're saying, um, it feels like week after week you've led the cell group and you're not necessarily making a big leap, that doesn't mean that it's worthless. Because to the measure that it is a shadow of God's ultimate restoration of the church, it, it is true, it is real, it is good. And so if you have felt this way, if you felt that there's a burden that you failed in carrying out, if you feel that there's a burden that you've once had and then you've given up on, and if you feel that there's a ministry that you've put your life into for months or years and it's not going where you wanted it to. Remember Zerubbabel. Rem remember Jeshua. What they built in their time was a shadow of God's ultimate restoration. And it was right and it was true and it was precious in God's eyes. So much so that God tells Zerubbabel, you're like the ring on my finger because you've poured yourself into this. Would you, would you pray with me? I'm going to give you a minute to, to just pray for yourself. Would you pray with me? God, this is, um, this is your word, and, and we trust that um, 
when your word is brought before your people, you, you will speak, that you will move, that you will comfort hearts and that you will challenge hearts and that you will stir hearts in the way that you did once upon a time. God, we pray particularly for those of us who, who have felt a stirring of your spirit at one time of our lives and felt that there was something to which we were called to give our all, to give our time, our money, our energies. And if, for whatever reason, that flame has been, has been extinguished, whether it was uh, through failure, whether it was through disappointment. God, would you revive that one more time? Would you show us now and here, remind us again now and here, what that stirring was? And God, we pray for those among us those who have put their hearts into a ministry over a very long time, whether they be our, our cell group leaders or our worship leaders or ushers or AV people or, or our preachers or our teachers or people who serve, people who have served quietly over many, many years and have felt that in some way they're, what they've done was not worthy, what they've done did not amount to much. That it was not seen, that it was not understood, that it was uh, not loved, that it was not worthy. We ask God that you would, uh, you would speak to them. That you would show them that to the measure that they are following your will and stirred by your spirit, they are the ring on your finger. They are the one that they have chosen. And even if the fruit of the ministry may be incomplete or imperfect or impermanent, in their time, what they've done is still for your glory and will be never forgotten. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. The service is over.